Hello everyone and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash movie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. This episode is part one of my four-part look at the Indiana Jones franchise. This episode was originally released to Patreon supporters about two months ago. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter and help support the work that we're doing over here at How Is This Movie and gain access to a number of bonus episodes, including the other three parts of this Indiana Jones retrospective, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. So please enjoy part one of my look at the Indiana Jones franchise, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Jones? Jones! I'm gonna blow up the acrony! Your persistence surprises even me. You're gonna give mercenaries a bad name. Dr. Jones? Surely you don't think you can escape from this island? It depends on how reasonable we're all willing to be. All I want is the girl. If we refuse, then your Fuhrer has no prize. Okay, stand back. All of you, stand back. back. Okay, Jones. You win. Blow it up. Zurück! 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 Yes, blow it up! Blow it back to God. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the Ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This... This is history. and welcome to this Patreon-exclusive episode of How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you all so much for your support. So in May 1977, on a beach in Hawaii, two filmmakers, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, were building a sandcastle. May 1977 happened to be right around the time that George Lucas's epic space opera, Star Wars, was about to be released. Lucas wanted to get as far away from the mainland United States, and more particularly Hollywood, as possible. He invited his friend Steven Spielberg along for the trip. Spielberg was in the middle of filming Close Encounters of the Third Kind and welcomed the chance to get away with his good friend. While on the beach, the two were discussing what their next projects were going to be. 
Spielberg mentioned to Lucas that he wanted to do a film that was set in various international locations, sort of a James Bond-style movie, with big action set pieces and various international locations. It was well on the beach that Lucas told Spielberg, hey, I might have just the idea for you, but we'll get back to that one in a little bit. First, let's get to know these two filmmakers a little bit better. Steven Allen Spielberg was born December 18, 1946, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Shortly after his birth, the Spielberg family moved to Arizona. Now, Spielberg had a few groundbreaking moments in his life. The first would be at the age of three, when he saw the movie The Greatest Show on Earth, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. It was a film about the circus. Now, The Greatest Show on Earth is famous for having one of the most elaborate train crashes in cinema history. This particular scene was the one that Spielberg credits as giving him his first inkling of the idea that he wanted to be a filmmaker. He fell in love with movies and trains. As a child, he would use his father's 8mm camera and model train set and do his best to recreate the crash from The Greatest Show on Earth. Well, as a Boy Scout, when Spielberg was attempting to get his photography merit badge, the Scoutmaster told him that he needs to use a still camera and take several pictures that told a story. However, the Spielberg family camera didn't work, so he asked his Scoutmaster if he could use an 8mm camera and shoot a movie instead. Now, thankfully, the Scoutmaster agreed, and Spielberg turned in an old-style Western film starring his friends and family, to which the film earned rave reviews from his fellow Boy Scouts and, of course, earned him his merit badge. Now, as a teenager, he continued to make movies with his friends. The 8mm films would often take place in a World War II setting. In one such film, he was able to gain access to a local airport in Arizona where they had some old World War II fighter planes. He was able to get his friends to sit in the cockpit, shoot them in the cockpit, and then he would splice together public domain World War II aerial combat footage. Now, the next groundbreaking moment happened for him the summer between his junior and senior year of high school. Spielberg was visiting his cousins in Los Angeles. On one particular day, he decided to take a bus tour of Universal Studios. This is before Universal opened up a theme park. But back then, they did offer daily bus tours of the studio. The bus tours generally lasted all day. And when the bus took a break during lunchtime, Spielberg got off the bus, hid in the bathroom, until the bus left, and then decided to take his own personal tour of Universal Studios, walking in and out of different TV shows and movies that were being filmed. By the end of the day, he walked into some random office and asked to use the telephone. He called his cousin to arrange a pickup time. The gentleman that let him use the phone asked him, Hey, how did you get in here? Now, this is where Spielberg made a decision. He decided not to lie. He told them that he had gotten off the bus because the tour wasn't showing him everything he wanted to see. The man that Spielberg was talking to happened to be the film librarian at Universal Studios. And he was so impressed with Spielberg's tenacity for wanting to see things on his own terms that right then and there, he wrote him a three-day full-access pass that he could use to get back on the studio and continue his own private tour. Over the next three days, Spielberg continued to tour every nook and cranny of Universal Studios. He also made it a point to dress very nice. He was there wearing a suit, those three days. He managed in just three days to make enough contacts on the studio lot that he was able to spend the entire summer there. Now, after his senior year of high school, Spielberg applied to the University of Southern California's film school. However, because of his poor grades, which you know he admits he's terrible at math, he wasn't accepted. He enrolled instead at Cal State University in Long Beach. Going back to all those great contacts that he made at Universal Studios, he was able to secure an internship at Universal Studios Editing Department. 
Now, it was while working in the editing department that he was given an opportunity to make a 26-minute long film. The 35mm movie was called Amblin. This film somehow or another made it to then-vice president of Universal Studios, Sid Sheinberg's office. Scheinberg was so impressed with what he saw in that 26-minute long movie that right then and there he offered Spielberg, who was only 20 years old, a seven-year contract to direct television productions on the Universal lot. Spielberg agreed and dropped out of college. Spielberg's first professional work was directing a segment for the pilot episode of Night Gallery in 1969. Now, this is notable not only because it was his first professional work, but he was working with prominent Hollywood actress Joan Crawford. Crawford had stated in interviews that she was aghast with the idea that a 20-year-old would be directing her on a television show, although she quickly did an about-face when she began working with Spielberg. She was so impressed with him that she was one of the first to publicly say that this guy was going to be a star in his field. The episode of Night Gallery that Spielberg directed was called Eyes in which Joan Crawford plays a rich blind woman who, with an experimental eye transplant, will be able to see for 12 hours. Night Gallery was very similar to The Twilight Zone in that each episode typically had a twist ending. And the twist for the episode of Eyes was that moments after she has the eye transplant, there is a blackout in the building she's in, and she becomes trapped without the ability to see anything. And my first few shows were, God, the first thing I did, of course, was the Joan Crawford Night Gallery. My abiding concern, Doctor, and my singular preoccupation is myself. 11 hours of 12, fewer or more, it makes no difference. I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, color! The average age of the crew that numbered well over 75, the average age of the crew was 50. And um, I realized that, oh my God, this was the crew that made my favorite movies of all time. This was the generation that had produced the golden age of Hollywood. And when I showed up with my acne and my long hair and the viewfinder pretentiously around my neck like some kind of a, a talisman that would protect me from all evil, um, I think they took one look at me and they said, this kid better prove himself quickly or he's out of here. Being greeted by tremendous hostility from the crew, from the motion picture crew. And the only friends I had on that first television show were my actors. Surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, Barry Sullivan, Tom Bosley, Joan Crawford, they were the people that backed me. And my cameraman, uh, Dick Batchelor, was great. But the rank and file of the crew were just sending daggers my way, working as slowly as they could, not to get themselves fired, maybe to get me pushed off the show because I wound up four days behind schedule on my first professional job. After Night Gallery, Spielberg went on to direct several other TV episodes, including Marcus Weebly, M.D., and an episode of Columbo. But you see, TV is not what Spielberg wanted to do. He wanted to direct movies. And after much persistence, the executives at Universal allowed Spielberg to direct a TV movie. The film was called Duel, about a traveling salesman on a road trip who was menaced by a tanker truck, hell-bent on running him off the road. Now, like I said, Duel was a made-for-TV movie released in the United States for ABC television, but the film was recut and given a theatrical release worldwide. And it took in close to 14 million. Look, uh, I want you to cut it out. What? Just, just cut it out, okay? For where? Now, come on. 
Come on, I mean, please, I, 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 let's not play games. What the hell are you talking about? I can call the police. Police? You think that I won't? You're wrong, mister. You, you, if you think you can take that, that truck of yours and just use it as a murder weapon just <laughs> killing people on the highway, well, you're wrong. You've got another thing coming. I don't need help. Don't you tell me I need help. Hey! Hey! Come on! Who the hell do you think you are knocking my shoes? Come on, come on! Now you want to fight? Get on up, son! I don't want to fight All right, all right, come right on. You already hit him twice now. What more do you want, huh? Huh? Come on now. Look at him. He's sick. Can't you see? You're gonna fight no one. So on a very, very technical level, Duel is Steven Spielberg's first theatrically released movie. Now, his first actual theatrical production, one that was actually being filmed for release in the United States was called The Sugarland Express, a movie about a married couple attempting to regain custody of their son before he goes into the foster care program. Oh, I haven't seen you here before. That's because I ain't been here before. It's my first time. Who'd y'all come to see? Clovis Poplin. I'm his legal wife, Lugene. Poplin, Poplin. See You just came from the penitentiary? Mm, here we go. So we're there. Here are my flimsy. Let's see what we got here, Elliot. Some nice little putties in here. Oh, let's see. Oh, what's this? That's Texas gold stamps in the market. Gimme. Gimme. Okay, that's the one. Okay. What we got in this one? All right, Mrs. Bubba, you just have yourself a real nice visit. I think the J.C.'s are going to have lemonade today. I didn't come for the drinking. No, of course you didn't. Now, you are permitted a uh, display of familial affection, including bodily contact, as long as it does not raise the public decency. Does that mean we can kiss? Uh, if you so desire. All right, then. The movie starred Goldie Hawn and Ben Johnson, and on a budget of $3 million, the Sugarland Express took in $12.8 million. A modest return, but a successful one. Spielberg's second theatrically released movie came out in 1975. It was a little film called Jaws. Now, there is no need for me to go into the particulars of the production of Jaws. Just scroll down a little bit more through the Patreon page and you'll find an episode dedicated to that movie. Suffice us to say, Jaws became the highest grossing film of all time. The first film to gross more than $100 million in the U.S. and set the template for summer blockbusters as we know it. And that was 42 years ago. In 1977, well in post-production on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg got a call from his good friend George Lucas, who invited him to join him for a week in Hawaii. Spielberg accepted the offer. George Lucas was born May 14, 1944, in Modesto, California. As a child growing up, Lucas was passionate about two things, great adventure stories and cars. And I'll get back to those adventure stories in just a little bit. But speaking of cars, Lucas was obsessed with them. Where most of the kids that grew up around Lucas spent their weekends outside playing baseball or going to the beach, Lucas could be found in local garages, working on and learning as much as he could about cars. He was so obsessed with cars that by the time he was in high school, he was racing in underground circuits at county fairs and abandoned airports. 
Now, it wasn't until a major accident that almost killed him in 1962 happened that he decided to abandon his dreams of becoming a professional race car driver. Around the time of the accident, his father gave him an 8mm camera. Lucas took the camera and began filming a lot of the races that he used to participate in. After high school, he enrolled at Modesto Junior College, where he studied anthropology, sociology, and literature. This is important because while in college... Lucas became familiar with the underground avant-garde and foreign cinema. His obsession with auto racing turned to filmmaking, and he enrolled at the University of Southern California's Cinematic Arts Program. Now, all of the students at the USC Film School at one point have to produce a student film as part of their thesis. Typically, the student film will be at least 30 minutes in length, and they would have the full resources of the university and the assistance of other fellow film students. Lucas made a short film called Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1138, about an underground city in a dystopian future. Plot of the film centers around one character in particular whose name is THX 1138, who is attempting to escape the community. The short film was very much science fiction, taking cues from everything from George Orwell's 1974 to the grip that communism had on the Soviet Union. THX 1138 won first prize in the category of dramatic films at the third annual National Student Film Festival that was held at Lincoln Center in New York. This is where Steven Spielberg first saw the film and first met George Lucas. The two would become lifelong friends. Now, some of the other filmmakers that George Lucas piled around with in the 60s were John Milius and Francis Ford Coppola. In 1969, Coppola convinced Lucas to move to San Francisco and help start a small independent production company called American Zoetrope. The idea behind this company was to help empower the latest generation of up-and-coming filmmakers. Now, by that point, Coppola had already made a couple studio films and had generated enough contacts within the studios that he felt comfortable that he would be able to secure funding for whatever projects American Zoetrope were working on. Warner Brothers was the first studio to back American Zoetrope. They not only gave Coppola and Lucas 300000 to develop ideas, but they also agreed to fully fund the first seven American Zoetrope films. Now, the first film that American Zoetrope greenlit into production was a theatrical version of George Lucas's student film, THX 1138. Budgeted at a little over 700000 and starring Robert Duvall and Donald Pleasance, THX 1138 was slated for a March 11, 1971 release. However, a month before it was to be released in theaters, executives at Warner Brothers arranged an advanced screening of THX 1138. So what did they think of the film? Well, they hated it. They hated it so much that they demanded that American Zoetrope give back the 300000 This bankrupted American Zoetrope, effectively ending the studio after one film. Now, interestingly enough, THX 1138 was released in 71 and grossed $2.4 million. So technically, it made money. THX was a parable about the way we were living in 1970. It wasn't about the future. Everything will be all right. I am here to protect you. We were trying to investigate the ramifications of an unbridled consumer culture that has lost any connection with the organic world and is completely self-contained. Buy more now. Buy and be happy. George was very um, susceptible and is to this day to the notion of empire crushing humanity. THX 1138 didn't have a Luke Skywalker in it, didn't have that kind of mythic hero, you know. It was actually, I think, a much more complex film. What's wrong? I need something stronger. Take for 
red capsules. What you see in THX that you see in Star Wars is, is, is the idea of somebody fighting against a more powerful kind of, of force. 63410, no, wait for 32. It was sociological analysis. It was like putting humanity under a microscope and saying, this is who we are, this is where we can wind up, this is what we stand to lose. For Francis Ford Coppola, this meant going back to work for the big studios, to which he promptly made The Godfather in 1972, arguably one of the greatest films ever made. For George Lucas, he was so disgusted by the power of the big studios that he had vowed to never work in the studio system again. He ensured that this would be possible by starting his own studio called Lucasfilm Limited. After the perceived failure of THX 1138, Francis Ford Coppola challenged George Lucas to write a script that would appeal to mainstream audiences. Now, once again, this goes back to what I've said in previous episodes. If you're a writer, you write what you know. And if there's one thing that George Lucas knew, it was cars, and particularly the car cruising culture. Drawing inspiration from things that happened to him in his youth, George Lucas wrote a screenplay called American Graffiti. Coppola was able to secure a modest $800,000 budget from Universal Pictures, and American Graffiti became the first Lucasfilm Limited production. Released on August 11, 1973, American Graffiti was a major hit, grossing close to $50 million. Now, all told, adjusted for inflation, American Graffiti took in close to $140 million worldwide. Hey, man, I'm sorry if I scared you. You're going to have to do one hell of a lot more than that to scare me. Yeah, but looking all over for you, man. Didn't nobody tell you I was looking for you? Hey, I can't keep track of all you punks running around here backwards. Hey, you're supposed to be the fastest thing in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. I'm sort of embarrassed to be this close to you. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised driving a field car. Field car? What's field car? Field car runs through the fields, drops cow shit all over the place to make the lettuce grow. Oh, that's pretty good. Hey, I like the color of your car there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? Well, you call that a paint job, but it's pretty ugly. I bet you got to sneak up on the pumps just to get a little air in your tires. Well, at least I don't have to pull over to the side just to let a funeral go by, man. Oh, funny. You know what? Your car's uglier than I am. That didn't come out right. Prove it! Why don't you go out and try to win yourself a few races? Man, you come on back and I'll show you a few things. Oh, racing, you can beat him. Hey, that's a tough-looking girl you got with you, man. What are you doing, trying to pick up a few extra bucks babysitting? Hey, dog, why don't you come on a ride with me in about ten years? Now, leave her out of this. It's just between you and me. Not always grand. You see, when Lucas attended the premiere of American Graffiti, he was shocked to see that major edits had been done to his film. He didn't have Final Cut, which meant when the studio, and in this case Universal Studios, took possession of the film, they owned it, and they were free to make whatever changes they saw fit. And I want to remind you that this is a practice that still goes on today. In the end, they shaved close to 10 minutes off the film, crucial things that Lucas saw as important to the film. What should have been the crowning achievement for George Lucas in his mind was a total disaster. He would never make another film again unless he had final cut. Right around the time that Lucas was wrapping up production on American Graffiti, he began writing outlines for two very different stories. The first one was an epic space movie. The second one was about an archaeologist named Indiana Smith. Now, both of these stories drew inspiration from the Saturday morning serials, 
that Lucas used to watch when he was a kid. Now, the majority of the Saturday afternoon matinees came from a company called Republic Pictures. It was founded in 1935. Now, the studio did all types of film, but really specialized in serials. If you're not exactly sure what a serial is, first of all, it's spelled with an S, not a C. Back in the 1930s and 40s, on Saturday mornings, children would go to the theaters to watch serials. Typically, a serial would be broken into 10 chapters, with one chapter a week playing. Now, the hook was at the end of each chapter, there would be a cliffhanger in which the hero was in real danger. This cliffhanger would force children back to the theater. You know what? I have a better idea. Let me have Kathy Bates describe to you a little bit better. I'm sorry, Paul. This is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out, except for that part of naming the gravedigger after me. You can leave that in. I really value your criticism, but maybe we're being a little hasty here. Paul, what you've written just isn't fair. Not fair. That's right. When I was growing up in Bakersfield, my favorite thing in all the world was to go to the movies on Saturday afternoons for the chapter plays. Cliffhangers. I know that, Mr. Man. They also call them serials. I'm not stupid, you know. Anyway, my favorite was Rocket Man. And once it was a no-breaks chapter, and the bad guys stuck him in a car on a mountain road and knocked him out and welded the door shut and tore out the brakes and started him to his death. And he woke up and tried to steer and tried to get out, but the car went off a cliff before he could escape. And it crashed and burned, and I was so upset and excited. And the next week, you better believe I was first in line. And they always start with the end of the last week. And there was Rocket Man trying to get out. And here comes the cliff. And just before the car went off the cliff, he jumped free. And all the kids cheered. But I didn't cheer. I stood right up and started shouting, This isn't what happened last week. Have you all got amnesia? They just cheated us. This isn't fair. He didn't get out of the cock-a-dooty car. They always cheated like that in um, chapter plays. But not you. Not with my misery. After the success of American Graffiti... Lucas had the opportunity to move forward on whatever project he wanted to do next. So which avenue would he go down? The archaeologist or the space opera? Well, I think we all know which story he decided to go with first. And I'm not going to get too much into the production of Star Wars. I know I'm almost four years into this podcast and I still haven't done the definitive episode on Star Wars yet, but trust me, I will. What's important to note about the production of Star Wars was that even though Lucas had come off a hit movie, space movies were not all the rage in the 1970s. In fact, most studios turned down his project, with the exception of 20th Century Fox, and more specifically, then-head of studio Alan Ladd Jr., who believed enough in George Lucas to greenlight the film with a $13 million budget. Now, making Star Wars almost killed Lucas, literally. He was so stressed out during the production of the film that he almost had a heart attack. And we're talking about a guy who was only 31 years old at the time. The week that Star Wars was set to be released in theaters, Lucas was convinced that the movie was going to flop. And he knew he had to get away from Hollywood as far away as possible. So he picked up the phone, called his friend Steven Spielberg, who was in the middle of, like I've said, post-production of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and said, why don't you join me in Hawaii? So that brings us back to the beginning of this episode. You've got the two filmmakers on the beach building a sandcastle. For Lucas, he's just trying to mellow out after a year and a half of making Star Wars. For Spielberg, he just needed a break from the production of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was going over schedule and going over budget. The two were talking about what they wanted to do next. Spielberg told Lucas that he wanted to do something similar to James Bond. He wanted to shoot in exotic locations. 
He wanted to have big stunts and action set pieces, but he couldn't come up with an idea to capitalize on what he wanted to do. So it was right then and there on the beach that Lucas told Spielberg that he had an idea he might want to look at. He told him about this character he created, Indiana Smith, sort of a gun-for-hire archaeologist who travels the world seeking rare ancient relics and treasures. He suggested to Spielberg that Indiana Smith might be the story he was looking for. On the beach, Spielberg said that he found the idea incredibly interesting. However, he wasn't crazy about the last name Smith, to which Lucas quickly replied, all right, how about we call him Indiana Jones? I can't make this up. That's literally how they came up with his name. On the beach in Hawaii, the two made an agreement right then and there that they would make a film based on Indiana Jones. They had no idea what the story would be about, but they knew they were going to make it. Lucas would serve as producer and co-writer, and Spielberg would serve as director. But remember, this is 1977. Both filmmakers were heavily involved in other projects. Spielberg was wrapping up Close Encounters, and Lucas, well, he returned to America to find out that he had the biggest movie of all time. So naturally, when Star Wars became the highest grossing film of all time, all of Lucas's attention shifted to a sequel to Star Wars. And for Spielberg, well, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was another huge hit. It didn't do Jaws numbers, but it was extremely successful. In early 1978, George Lucas now had two projects in his wheelhouse. First, of course, was the sequel to Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. And second was the very, very early stages of pre-production for Indiana Jones. This is where Lawrence Kasdan comes in, a screenwriter who was hired by Lucas to help write the screenplay for Empire Strikes Back. Lucas also approached Kasdan about helping him with the Indiana Jones story. Kasdan agreed, and for four days in January of 78, Lawrence Kasdan George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg discussed story ideas. Now, in these four days, everything about Indiana Jones was fleshed out. Indiana Jones's backstory, including the fact that he was a college professor, the decision to add a supernatural religious theme, having Nazis be bad guys, adding the Ark of the Covenant, and several of the major action set pieces were discussed, including the giant boulder, the fist fight just feet away from spinning propeller blades, the insane truck chase, the Well of Souls, and all the snakes... And little things were discussed, like Indiana Jones's outfit and the signature fedora and the lion tamer's whip. Some ideas, like Indiana Jones escaping Shanghai in an airplane only to have to jump out of the airplane in a life raft, were discussed, but ultimately not used in the film. Rather, they would be saved for the further adventures of Indiana Jones. Kasdan transcribed the entire four-day meeting into a hundred-page transcript to which he used to write the first few drafts of a film they were now calling Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Dr. Jones, we've heard a great deal about you. Have you? Uh, professor of archaeology, expert on the occult, and uh, how does one say it? Obtainer of rare antiquities. One way of saying it. Why don't you sit down? You'll be more comfortable. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, you're a uh, Man of many talents. Uh, you studied under Professor Ravenwood at the University of Chicago. Yes, I did. You have no idea of his present whereabouts? Uh, just rumors, really. Somewhere in Asia, I think. I haven't really spoken to him for ten years. We were friends, but, uh... Had a bit of a falling out, I'm afraid. Mm. Dr. Jones, now, you, you must understand that this is all strictly confidential, eh? I understand. Uh, <clears throat> yesterday afternoon, our European sections intercepted a, a German communique that was sent from Cairo to Berlin. Now, you see, Cairo, over the last two now, years, the Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. It's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. 
And right now, apparently, there's some kind of German archaeological dig going on in the desert outside of Cairo. Well, we've got some information here, but we can't make anything out of it, and maybe you can. Tannis Development Proceeding. Acquire headpiece, staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. Nazis have discovered Tannis. Just what does that mean to you, uh, Tannis? Well, well, the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. But what do you what mean, do you ten mean commandments? The... You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. You think you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, I... Oh, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan... They put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden, whoosh, is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishan. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 B.C., and he may have taken the Ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber? However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. Uh, obviously, we've come to the right men. Now, you seem to know uh, all about this, Tanis. No, no, not really. Ravenwood is the real expert. Abner did the first serious work on Tanis. He collected some of its relics was his obsession, really. But he never found the city. Frankly, we're somewhat suspicious of Mr. Ravenwood, uh, American being mentioned so prominently in a secret Nazi cable. Oh, rubbish. Ravenwood's no Nazi. Well, what did the Nazis want him for, then? Well, obviously, the Nazis are looking for the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, and they think Abner's got it. What exactly is a headpiece to the Staff of Ra? Well, the Staff is just a stick, I don't know, about this big. Nobody really knows for sure how high, and it's, it's, uh, it's capped with an elaborate headpiece in the shape of the sun, with a crystal in the center. And what you did was you take the staff to a special room in Tadness, a map room with a miniature of the city all laid out on the floor. And if you put the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone through here and made a beam that came down on the floor here and gave you the exact location of the Well of the Souls. Where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. Now, what does this Ark look like? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. Good God. Yes, that's just what the Hebrews thought. Uh... Now, what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. Power of God or something. You need to understand Hitler's interest in this. Thing. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. With the script pretty much ready to go, there would be a few more rewrites. Spielberg and Lucas were ready to start shopping this around to different studios. Now, this may come as a shock to you, 
because it certainly did to me. Almost every studio passed on this. Now we're talking about two of the most important filmmakers of the 1970s, who between the two of them had the two highest grossing films of all time back to back with Jaws and Star Wars. And the studios were passing. You see, when Spielberg and Lucas would meet with the studios, the executives pretty much said identical things to them. They would say, this sounds good, but how much is it going to cost? The working number that they had in their head was $20 million. Now, to be fair, that's a lot of money for 1980. That's more money than Jaws cost, and that's more money than Star Wars cost. And it was for an idea that really hadn't been seen on the screen in almost 40 years. I will say this. If there's one thing that studio executives never seem to have, it's foresight. Finally, the executives of Paramount Pictures agreed to finance the film only if George Lucas agreed to a five-picture deal with them. So with the deal in place, it was now time for Lucas and Spielberg to find their Indiana Jones. Among those who auditioned for the role were Tim Matheson, Peter Coyote, and John Shea. And yes, that's the same John Shea that's in Jim Hemphill's The Trouble with the Truth, for those who are keeping score. Before finally deciding on Tom Selleck. Yes, Tom Selleck was cast in the role. However, three weeks before filming was to begin in England, Tom Selleck had to drop out. The reason was because he had landed a television series for CBS and the two shooting schedules would conflict with each other. The television show in question was called Magnum P.I. Spielberg and Lucas were in a scramble to recast Indiana Jones. Right around that time, Lucas invited Spielberg to view a rough-cut screening of The Empire Strikes Back. During the screening, Spielberg told Lucas, Look, Indiana Jones is right there on the big screen. He's right there. Harrison Ford. To which Lucas replied, but people already identify him as Han Solo. He couldn't possibly play both parts. Now Spielberg was able to convince Lucas that, hey, look, Harrison Ford is an actor. And throughout his career, he's going to play hundreds of different characters. Spielberg and Lucas met with Ford three days later. And after reading the screenplay, Harrison Ford took the part. Harrison Ford was born July 13, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. Throughout junior high and high school, he was an extremely shy person. He has said in previous interviews that he was bullied to no end in high school. After high school, he enrolled at Ripon College in Wisconsin, where he took part in the drama department. It was acting that helped him break through his shyness. Now, he excelled at acting, so much so that he made the decision to drop out of college and pursue a full-time acting career. In 1964, along with his wife, he moved to Hollywood and was quickly signed by Columbia Pictures to their new talent program. Now, these talent programs, which most studios offered, were kind of like signing a major league baseball contract essentially you're drafted into a studio and you would be under contract by that studio they would put you into acting classes and very regimented schedules the same way a major league baseball team would put a prospect through their minor league systems the studios would slowly begin to roll you out in bit parts and walk-on roles for harrison ford's first walk-on role was for a movie called deadly heat on a merry-go-round this performance did have an impact on ford's career the executive in charge of the new talent program at Columbia Pictures, set Harrison Ford down and told him that he'll never have a career in acting. He just doesn't have the it factor. He was promptly let go by Columbia Pictures and then quickly snatched up by Universal Pictures for their new talent program. They put him in TV right away. He appeared on a number of different westerns that were shot on the Universal lot. It was while under the new talent program at Universal that he was cast in George Lucas's 1973 film, American Graffiti. Now, American Graffiti made stars out of Ron Howard and Richard Dreyfuss, but not Harrison Ford. Now, his, his minor role in the film did little to help his acting career. So he embarked on a new career, 
carpentry. Now, having never taken a single trade course on how to be a carpenter, Ford was able to con his way into his first job building a music studio. He literally checked books out of the local library on carpentry. And to everyone's surprise, including himself, he was able to pull the job off. He was quickly becoming a master carpenter. Now, because Francis Ford Coppola had helped Lucas get American Graffiti off the ground, and he liked Harrison Ford's role in the movie, he cast him in a small role in his next film called The Conversation. It's a nice Christmas cookie, sir. I made you want one? Oh, they're good. Oh, thanks. What do you see? Here's your money, fifteen thousand dollars cash, as well, you asked. Uh, and these are our tapes. I had an arrangement with the director. I was to give those to him, uh, you see, personally. I understand, but he's not here this afternoon. Matter of fact, he's out of the country, and he asked me to get the tapes from you and give you the money. I guess I can just wait on this. Mr. Cole, those tapes are dangerous. You are, you know what I mean. Someone may get hurt. I will get into a little more detail about how Harrison Ford got the role as Han Solo when I do my Star Wars podcast, but basically it boils down to this. Harrison Ford was hired to help read lines with potential actors that were auditioning for parts in Star Wars. Lucas could not deny the fact that Harrison Ford was going to be perfect for the role of Han Solo. But like I said, we'll get into a lot more detail when I do my Star Wars podcast. For the role of Marion Ravenwood, Spielberg and Lucas auditioned a number of young leading ladies, including Sean Young and Deborah Winger. Winger was offered the role, but ultimately turned it down. During the auditioning phase for the role of Indiana Jones, in particular when Tim Matheson and John Shea were auditioning, a young actress by the name of Karen Allen was brought in to read lines with them. After Deborah Winger turned down the role, the role of Marion was offered to Karen. Hello, Marion. Indiana Jones. <sighs> Always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. I never doubted that. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out! Mohan, Temigru, Bolianu. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. I need one of the pieces your father collected. A bronze piece about this size with a hole in it off center with a crystal. You know the one I mean? Yeah. I know it. Where's Abner? Where's Abner? Abner's dead. Marion, I'm sorry. Do you know what you did to me in my life? I can only say I'm sorry so many times. Well, say it again anyway. Sorry. Yeah, everybody's sorry. Abner was sorry for dragging me all over this earth looking for his little bits of junk. I'm sorry to still be stuck in this dive. Everybody's sorry for something. It's a worthless bronze medallion, Marion. You gonna give it to me? Maybe. I don't know where it is. Well, maybe... You could find it. Three thousand bucks. Well, that will get me back. But not in style. 
I can get you another two when we get to the States. It's important, Marion. Trust me. You know the piece I mean? You know where it is? <laughs> Come back tomorrow. Why? Because I said so, that's why. See you tomorrow, Indiana Jones. Filming of Raiders of the Lost Ark was going to call for a different style from Steven Spielberg. He assured George Lucas that they would not go over schedule and they would not go over budget. It was understood that when the money was gone, there wasn't going to be any more. Now, Spielberg's previous three films all famously went over budget and over schedule, especially Jaws. Spielberg had a reputation of doing multiple takes. And when I say multiple takes, I don't mean three or four. I mean 30, 40, sometimes 50. The time allotted to shoot Raiders of the Lost Ark would not allow for this. So in most cases, Spielberg limited himself to four takes at the max. This was going to be the first Spielberg film that was 100% storyboarded. These days, all big action films are pre-visualized. This is a technique where the entire film is mapped out and animated using a computer. Typically, a director will be involved in the pre-vis stage, but back in the 1970s and early 80s, if you wanted to pre-visualize a movie, you had to storyboard it and draw every scene. Now, this is something that George Lucas does religiously, and Spielberg did some storyboarding for some scenes in Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but to ensure every scene will be ready to go and be ready to be shot, every single moment of Raiders of the Lost Ark was illustrated by a group of four illustrators. Spielberg did get one thing he desperately wanted, a film that was set in international locations. For example, the Nazi submarine scene was filmed at an actual World War II submarine pen in La Rochelle, France. They borrowed a submarine off of the set of Das Boot. L Street Studios in England is where they filmed the Well of Soul scene. Kauai, Hawaii doubled for the Peruvian jungle scene in the opening of the film. Tunisia doubled for Egypt. And that's what's interesting because Tunisia is where the Tatooine scenes were filmed in Star Wars. And Lucas had a hell of a difficult time filming there. So I, was, I found it kind of surprising that they decided to take the production to shoot there. Now, going back to the Well of Souls scenes for a moment. This, of course, is the scene where Indiana Jones and Marion enter an underground cavern that's filled with snakes. Kind of the running joke throughout the entire Indiana Jones series is that he hates snakes. He's deathly afraid of them. So am I, by the way. I'm just putting that out there. Now, this was the 1980s when they were filming this movie. So you know what this means? No CGI effects. So I know what you must be thinking. Well, that was a hell of a lot of rubber snakes they must have used, coupled with a few real ones. Well, that wasn't the case at all. No, the Well of Souls scene used 7,000 snakes. Well, that's not exactly 100% accurate. There were a couple pythons, and there were a couple of cobras, and they were very much real. But the majority of the snakes that were used weren't snakes at all, rather legless lizards. Now they have this neat scientific name that I tried forever to pronounce, and for the life of me I can't, but they're commonly called palace glass lizards, or European legless lizards. Now, these particular reptiles grow about four to five feet in length. And since they don't have legs, they are commonly mistaken for snakes. These glass lizards are indigenous to Europe and Central Asia, and they are quite harmless to humans. In fact, they're incredibly docile creatures. Now, what sets them apart besides being harmless to humans, they have distinctive differences from snakes. First, they have eyelids. Second, they have ear canal openings. And third, their tongues are not forked. Harrison Ford in real life has a zero phobia of snakes and had no problem filming those scenes. 
Things were very different for Karen Allen, however, because if you recall, she's wearing a short white dress with heels, where Harrison Ford is wearing pants and boots. So she admitted to having a much more difficult time filming those scenes. In the scene where the cobra looks like it's getting ready to strike Indy, there was a piece of protective glass between Harrison Ford and the snake. Interestingly enough, you can actually see the reflection of the glass. If you watch a VHS copy of the film, it wasn't until 2003 when the reflection was digitally removed for all future releases of the film. One of the most iconic scenes in the entire film is when Indiana Jones comes face-to-face with a swordsman. The swordsman is wielding a giant sword and showing off some dazzling moves before lunging towards Indy. Now, this particular scene was supposed to involve a duel between Indy and the swordsman in which Indy only uses his whip. The stuntman who played the swordsman trained for three months for this particular scene. The scene was scheduled to shoot for three days. However, this was being filmed in Tunisia. Harrison Ford, along with the majority of the crew, became quite ill while working in Tunisia after eating the local cuisine. Side note, Spielberg brought all canned foods from England and refused to eat anything that was cooked locally. Harrison Ford in particular came down with dysentery. Now, I don't want to get into the particulars of what dysentery is, but let's just say you spend a lot of time in the bathroom. On the day that he was to shoot the famous scene with the swordsman, Ford told Spielberg he could only give him an hour. That's all the strength he had. One hour of shooting. To which Spielberg replied, you know, this is going to take three days to shoot Harrison. It was at that moment that Harrison Ford said, well, why doesn't Indy just shoot the son of a bitch? I mean, he's got a gun. Light bulb went off in Spielberg's head, and that's how the three-day shoot in which Indiana Jones was supposed to face off with the swordsman, with only his whip turned into the most iconic scene in the film. You kind of have to feel bad for the stuntman who spent three months training for the sequence, only to find out that it wasn't going to happen. The famous truck chase scene was filmed by second unit director Michael D. Moore and George Lucas. The scene in which Indy goes underneath the moving truck, this was a direct homage to the very famous Yakum Kanat stunt that was filmed for the movie Stagecoats. However, it needs to be noted that they shot that scene in 20 frames per second instead of the standard 24 frames per second. This was a technique used that would allow the truck to give the appearance that it was going at a much higher rate of speed than it actually was. Harrison Ford did as much of his own stunt work for that scene as he was allowed, including being dragged behind the truck. Composer John Williams, who had worked with both Spielberg and Lucas in the past, was brought on to compose the music for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, he actually composed two separate themes and was having trouble figuring out which one to go with. When he played both of them back-to-back for Spielberg, Spielberg said he liked them both and suggested to John Williams that he should mix the two together into one piece. Well, that one piece became known as the Raiders March, which, of course, is the most iconic Indiana Jones music, which is featured in all four films. Now, Spielberg was able to keep his promise to George Lucas. By that, I mean he finished the film $2 million under budget and 15 days ahead of schedule. Raiders of the Lost Ark was released June 12, 1981 and became the highest grossing film of 1981, taking in almost $400 million. It was the second highest grossing film of Spielberg's career to that point. The film wasn't only a financial success, it was critically hailed and received nine Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, ultimately winning four technical Oscars. The film stands at a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes and was selected for film preservation by the United States Congress. Now, if you can believe it, last week when I rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was the first time in almost 20 years that I had seen the film. It was like watching again for the first time. They say hindsight is 2020, and I often wonder 
To all of those studio executives that turned down the opportunity to make this film, if they look at it with serious regret, Raiders of the Lost Ark represents a film that just isn't made anymore. Now, I know I say that a lot lately, and perhaps at my age, I'm getting a little bit nostalgic for films like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not perfect. Some of the effects don't hold up, but most of the practical effects do. And in a later episode, I'll make the argument a little bit stronger when I talk about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a movie that suffers because of the invention of computer-generated imagery. So we're just getting started with our look at the Indiana Jones franchise. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for your support. Done your country a great service, we thank you. And uh, we trust you found the settlement satisfactory. Well, the money's fine. The situation is totally unacceptable. Well, gentlemen, I guess that just about wraps it up. Where is the Ark? I thought we'd settled that. The Ark is somewhere very safe. From whom? The Ark is a source of unspeakable power, and it has to be researched. And it will be, I assure you, Dr. Brody, Dr. Jones. We have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. When I did Star Wars, when I was coming up with my ideas for Star Wars, which was really about the time I was doing THX, um, or finished THX, and I was looking for something to do uh, uh, before I was doing American Graffiti, I had this idea for American Graffiti, and I also had the idea uh, for this kind of uh, uh, taking a 30 serial, using mythology and ideas from the past, and creating a... Uh, kind of an adventure film, uh, new mythology. Um, I came up with two ideas. One was a space adventure. One was the adventure of an archaeologist uh, looking for supernatural artifacts. Um, I landed on the space thing and said, this has got more potential. I think this is going to be more fun to do. Uh, put the archaeologist on the shelf and then started doing Star Wars. As I was doing Star Wars and I was going along um, and... Um, uh, I was sort of talking to friends to see if I could get somebody to do that film because I didn't. You know, I was busy doing Star Wars and I wanted to get that thing made. So nothing really happened until I finished Star Wars. And when I uh, uh, finished it, I was sitting on the beach uh, after the release of the film. Uh, Stephen, we were in Hawaii, and Stephen was there, and um, he was saying that how he what he really wanted to do was a James Bond film. And I said, oh, well, I've got a great idea because this is much better than a James Bond film. And so I told him the story of Indiana Jones, and he said, oh, that's it, let's do it. And that was really where it started. And I said, okay, well, we'll when we go back, we'll hire a writer and we'll get going on it. The most memorable thing about Raiders was just the making of Raiders. I, I, I had a great time working with Harrison Ford for the first time, Karen Allen, you know, John Rhys Davis, Paul Friedman, my God, you know, um, um, I, I just had one of the best times of my entire life working on that picture. And it was, it was like recreating a Saturday matinee. It was a cliffhanger. So it was all those films I used to see when I was eight and nine years old, the revivals of all the black and white Republic serials. And suddenly I had a chance to make a, a, a serial in widescreen and in Technicolor. It was very exciting. Well, for one thing, you know, the Harrison Ford character, Indiana Jones, is a vulnerable guy. He's tough as nails on the outside, but he gets hurt in the fights he has, and he's got a, a soft heart, and he's, he's, he's not strong with women. He thinks he is, but in fact, they get the better of them. They bet. Carrot Allen gives him a terrific sock in the jaw in that film. And uh, it had a little bit of, the I thought, the Gable-Lombard connection. It had a little bit of Elsa and Rick from Casablanca. 
I've always thought that Harrison was a bit like a contemporary Humphrey Bogart, and uh, I thought he was perfect to play Indiana Jones. And of course, they're going after a tremendously powerful religious icon, which is the Lost Ark of the Covenant. You know, with the power of God inside. I mean, I mean, I mean, we were, you know, we we wanted our cake and eat it in that movie, and and George came up with all of that. That was George's invention, and uh, it was just a tremendous MacGuffin to go after. Well, Raiders of of the Lost Ark starts out with a bang and never really lets you breathe. It's a it's a real romp, uh, a real audience film. I think one of the things that makes Indiana Jones uh, attractive is his. Uh, uh, lack of uh, respect for authority always makes a good movie hero. Um, he's a bit of a of a uh, scoundrel from time to time, but uh, uh, deep at his heart, he's a he's a good guy. And does good things for people. Humor's uh, uh, a very important part of a, of the of the nature of uh, of the character of Indiana Jones. I don't like to be around somebody who doesn't have a sense of humor, so I look for moments uh, uh, of lightness uh, to share with the audience. And we found a, a lot of those uh, kinds of moments in, uh, in the Indiana Jones series.